Welcome to Q&A Selling Online with answers to questions about creating an online empire, promoting products, or building a brand. Your host, private label and e-commerce entrepreneur, Quinn Amorm. Welcome back, my friends. Today, we have Ryan Mulvaney, who is a Amazonaholic, if you ever heard of that. Uh, he started selling used books, then he moved over to selling new books, then toys, games, food, soap, beauty products, and he was even selling at one point Justin Bieber pillowcases. And in 2013, he founded Quiver that provides Amazon solutions to the top recognized consumer packaged good organizations. And in 2014, from 14 to 17, it became the third fastest growing company in San Diego, and Amazon even awarded them with a platinum seller status. And in 2017, he sold the entire business to a strategic partner, Advantage Sales and Marketing. We have Ryan Mulvaney. How's it going? Going good, man. Stoked to, uh, stoked to be here. I'm stoked to have you here. This is incredible. And you started selling on Amazon in what year? Uh, I believe it was 2008. Like, back wow. when it, like, should I sell on eBay or Amazon? Like, that was still like the thought process. Mm -hmm. Were you like feeling, did you feel lonely in the platform as a third party? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how to feel because I didn't, like, before that, um, I had sold some stuff on eBay before and the customers were just sort of annoying. Like, they would send you messages and want to know stuff and all this. But when you would sell on Amazon, it was so much more passive. Um, so I, I, I did like that a lot more. Yeah. So how did you get into Amazon? Um, it started with my, uh, my, my wife, who was my fiance at the time, graduating college, coming back and had a textbook that she needed to now get rid of and handed it to me, um, and said, Hey, you, you've sold some stuff on online before. Why don't you try to sell this on Amazon? And I was like, Amazon, like why, why Amazon? Like, well, I had a girlfriend who did it on Amazon, so you should try that. And so I, I threw it up there and it sold, you know, it sold in like 15 minutes for like 50 bucks. And I was like, whoa, like, do all I need to do is just get books and then put them on Amazon and they will sell? And so I did that and, uh, you know, they, they started selling. I was, I was just, it, it seemed so easy to me that you could just take these things that were on people's shelves that they didn't really care about anymore and you could just list them on Amazon in a matter of like 15 minutes and you could sell them in a matter of days. Um, and so I just started rinsing, repeating that sort of, you know, yeah. you know, through, through the books, the libraries, all sorts of stuff. And this in, in 08, did you even know what a private label was? It was just random selling that one book. Yeah, no private label. I, you know, I, I wish I did. This might be a different kind of conversation if I predicted private label back yeah. in 2008, <laughs> but really it was just whatever products I could get my hands on. Um, you know, it was a combo of, you know, just reselling, you know, drop shipping. I, I lived at my parents' house, so I, I couldn't store anything anywhere and I didn't do FBA cause I thought that was too much work. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was really just anything I could get my hands on. Nice. And then this platinum seller status that you got from Amazon, what is this? Platinum seller status, um, is Amazon's, you know, it's an older type of badge, um, you know, it's sort of a status thing, but it, it's their way of recognizing you on the platform and, and giving you additional levels of support. You get paid a little bit quicker. Um, and it's, it's one of those programs. It's, it's sort of like the Amex black card. Like if you're ready, they'll come to you. Um, so they approached us a couple years ago with the possibility of it. Um, and I think it was sort of triggered off of a revenue threshold within the platform. 
Um, and then they, they bring you, and I'm not sure if they're still bringing, um, sellers into that program. Um, but yeah, we were, we were definitely one of them. Nice. That business was that quiver or quiver is the, the new, the new version of your business. Yeah, that was quiver. So the, the book business, um, was always sort of a side hustle. Um, I just was sort of learning the platform while I had real jobs <laughs> as I call yeah. it. And, um, I ended up getting a job at a digital agency and realized that I could apply a lot of the things that I was learning on Amazon to some of the brands that they had within the agency. And I um, went to the owner of the business. I said, hey, I think we have a different model here. We could do Amazon for brands. And that was, I think, back in like 2013 or something. And then we launched Quiver. And probably two and a half, three years in, probably two and a half years into Quiver is when we got the platinum status. Okay, gotcha. So Quiver basically is is the brand that you used to sell online and you also manage other sellers under the Quiver brand? Yeah. So the way that it works is uh, when we launched Quiver back in 2015, like I said, we had access to brands and we realized that they didn't really want to pay attention to Amazon. It was sort of getting categorized with eBay and they're like, why would we care? And so we set up a model where we would actually buy and then resell their products on their behalf as their exclusive. Mm -hmm. And then we would do all the things that they should be doing on the platform but we would do them for free uh, because we were making money by selling product. And it was really us, you know, dabbling with, you know, how do we get some exclusivity here so that we can, you know, protect, protect our buy box, protect our margins, all that fun stuff. Um, but then beyond that, there was this private label sort of movement starting to surge up and we did launch a handful of our own products and still sell them to this day. But we realized we could apply the tactics of private label to existing brands that people already know about and accelerate the growth much quicker than trying to ramp up a net new private label brand on our own. And so that's really where we sort of hung our hat and, and doubled down it. Gotcha. So basically it was like what we today call wholesale, but you would have exclusive uh, rights to sell on Amazon and you would be the one creating the listing from scratch and all of that stuff. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes we create the listings from scratch. Other times we would, um, you know, work with what was already there, just depended on what the brand wanted. Um, but yeah, it would be sort of under that wholesale model. I think the big difference here would be we don't work with brands or we didn't work with brands that would wholesale to anybody else other than us or maybe a few partners. It wasn't, if they were open to wholesaling, you know, to anybody, um, it was going to make it very difficult for us to do our job. So we, yeah. we would shy away from those types of brands. Cool. And uh, I'm guessing back then it would be a lot easier to, to show up to, I don't know, like L'Oreal and pitch them to that. Was it a lot easier because they figured Amazon was just another eBay? And yeah. is that right? It's a good question. It's funny because when we would go to these brands, we would pull the data and we'd be like, they don't know it, but there's, you know, because there was so much arbitrage going on and their brick and mortars were all selling on Amazon. And, you know, we had tactics on how to clean all that up. And, we realized like, look, if, if we could just channel this right and through us, you know, let's say it's a million dollar a month opportunity, but the brand didn't know that because their whole market was being spread out across maybe 10 or 15 brick and mortars, which represented a million dollars. And so we would go to these brands and we would tell them all these things that we could do for them. And then they would come to us and they'd say, Hey, well, what's the catch? Like, what's the fee? We're like, no, 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 there's no fee. You just, you know, we're going to clean up the channel. You have to allow us to buy and sell your products. And they would be like, but yeah, but what's the fee? Like, we don't get it. And, and some of them just didn't trust us. They're like, we don't get this. Like, this isn't going to work out. Um, and so back in the day, we, we ran into a lot of that. 
Um, and as we started getting more competition, um, you know, they started understanding like, oh, it's like a buy sell model. We're like, yes, yes. And so it's, it's, you know, while there is more competition, um, and good competition out there that, 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 you know, we play against, um, you know, I think that the education of it all has made it easier for us to go in and talk to brands and at least have them understand our model quicker. Yeah, exactly. And then at that time it was still, uh, most of the things were like today, you still have to pay your product up front, right? The hundred percent up front because the manufacturer itself, they didn't know you yet. Right. Right. Yeah. So we would be, um, you know, buying product up front. We would, we would have, you know, and that was one of the, you know, the benefits of having partners early and we were playing the credit card roulette game for quite a while, trying to build up our credit. Um, but if you had, you know, one of the ways that you could show a brand that you were ready to go is by doing a large opening purchase order. I, I will say that that's also one of the most suspicious things you can tell a brand is like, Hey, we just want to order a lot of your product because they've been told that before and been burned by that before. And so there's a fine line you have to walk in terms of building your credibility and then coming, you know, correct with the amount of money that you're going to need to, to be able to support the business that you know is, is, is there. Yeah. Back then was this 2013, 14, there's probably not, not the tools that we have today, you know, like jungle scouts, helium 10 and all that. You didn't have any of that to give you real stats or did you have anything? I had a, uh, a tool. I had a couple scrapers that I had built. Um, I worked with a guy in India to build out some, some, you know, some, some pieces of the puzzle. Nothing as sophisticated as the ones you had mentioned. Um, you know, those are almost daily tools for us here. I mean, they are daily tools for us. Um, and so, yeah, it was much more manual. And, you know, it was a lot of, you know, just elbow grease and spreadsheets and, and just sort of, you know, pounding your head against the wall until you, until you figured it out. Yeah. And then in 2017, you sold the business. And was this just your book selling part of the business? Or was it a full wholesale account of yours? Um, so yeah, by 17, we were no longer selling books. We probably sunsetted book selling in like 2014, 2015. Like right when Quiver started, the old model of like just buying and reselling people's products without any sort of strategic relationship went away. And so... It, you know, we started building our business by working with brands that, that would partner with us within Amazon. And so when, when 2017 came around with Advantage Sales and Marketing, they're a very large broker for the consumer packed goods category, yeah. uh, the largest in the U.S. So they'll work with like Unilever and, and, and very big like names out there to help put their products on the shelves of like Costco and Target and Walmart, for example. And they wanted us to come in and start doing that. Um, with their brands, just for Amazon, help the big, the biggest brands merchandise their products on Amazon. Um, and so they bought us, you know, I, I, we'd have to ask them clearly what they bought us for, but I believe it was, you know, for, you know, our clients, but then also for our expertise, because their core mission is to stay relevant to their portfolio. And Amazon is definitely something that you want to sort of be, you know, on top of. Okay. And at this point, do you own still a hundred percent of that or did you have any partnerships? Um, when we sold, I, I had a, I had two other partners. Uh, we, it was an asset purchase, so they bought everything. And going back to one of the questions you had earlier about, you know, sort of when you, you know, set up a new account with a brand and you need to be able to order product. It was one of the, the biggest benefits of being bought by a multi-billion dollar company is we could make the buying decisions now, you know, that we needed to be, that needed to be made. And we could continue to grow the business and scale our model without having to take out more credit cards and, and, and worry about cash flow. 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so we had, I had a couple partners, and then yeah, asset purchase. So now I, I no longer own any any of Quiver anymore, but I am still here working. Okay, so basically, you you ended up selling your company, and now they ask you to remain there for a period of time, right? Is it normally a year or two? Yeah, every you know every deal is different. Um, they'll they'll put you into sometimes they'll 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 buy you out up front, and then you, you go. Sometimes they'll buy you out up front, but they want you to stay on. And if you enjoy it, you can stay on. You know, sort of indefinitely. We have a a post uh, deal earnout period, but it doesn't necessarily mean the employment ends after that period. Um, we've been very fortunate with our parent company, and they haven't come in and changed anything, and they continue to give us the the resources and support to grow the business that we wanted to to grow it. Um, you know, I'm one of the the fortunate entrepreneurs that comes on the other side of a of an acquisition. Says I actually really like the company that bought us. So yeah, still here, still uh, still beating the Amazon drum. And how does it feel? Because you know, not not just people that want to sell on Amazon or eBay, Shopify. It doesn't matter. Even brick and mortar. A lot of people always have the dream of being acquired by somebody, and sometimes it's not what they expect, and. Other times it's, yeah, all the dreams come true. So how was it for you? Yeah, you know, one of the things that we, we definitely had to do, you know, was when there were companies approaching us from a potential acquisition standpoint, really think through what that would mean beyond the dollars, you know, in terms of your, of your daily life. Um, because, you know, what you don't want to do is, is, is put yourself into a situation where you're just so tired of your business that you want to get it off your hands and then realize that you have to continue working there potentially to realize the full value of why you sold your business. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we were very diligent with, you know, the companies we're talking to from an acquisition standpoint Uh, and advantage just seemed to sort of culturally mend with us the best, you know, they, yes, they are a multi-billion dollar company. um, And we're, uh, we're this, you know, (laughs) this this misfit band of pirates down in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Um, but in the same breath, we started spotting commonalities and workflows and, and then really just them seeing value in the way that we built our business and, and realizing that if we, they, if we wanted to continue to build this business, we were going to have to sort of steer it our way. You know, that doesn't mean that there's not new protocol and new things that we have to do within the org, but they, they bought us for the way that we ran the business and they, they very much so respected that, um, you know, two years where we've been... We were bought two years ago, so yeah, two years later, we we still are uh, we still have that respect, which is nice. And you all only deal with top brands, or let's say the Amazon third-party seller, somebody that's creating their own private labels. Can they go to Quiver, and then you're gonna uh, do that for them? Or you, do you man? What I mean is, do you man like seller central accounts, or just do kind of the wholesale part of it? Right, right. Yeah, you know. Our, our model is set up more for the enterprise client, something yeah. someone that's going to be in market that you're going to have heard of, maybe already on Amazon, or a startup that would be funded. Our, our systems and protocol, we're not, we're not set up for that, you know, that net new product that doesn't have you know, a whole lot of traction just yet. And, I, and my, my best suggestion for those types of people is you know, listen to podcasts like this, watch videos on YouTube, learn everything you can do it because that is your asset, is going to be your knowledge on how to deploy and sell product within Amazon, you know, I, I wouldn't be quick to outsource that because there's no, there's no quick solution to, you know, to, to winning on Amazon. And, you know, it takes grit and it takes grind and you just sort of have to see it through and you have to learn it, learn it yourself in, in my opinion. Yeah. Just like anything, I don't think there's no more low hanging fruit, the overnight successes and that kind of stuff, right? There's everything takes a bit of work and 
focus. Focus is too very important. Sure. So how about private label? Do you do any of that? We have four or five of our own brands um, that we sell within the marketplace, um, in the kitchen category, in the baby category. And in the beginning, when we launched the business, you know, we had two models. We're like, okay, we could sell our own products or we could apply these tactics to existing brands. And so we sort of went down the path of both. And what we realized, what we found we were better at was applying the tactics to existing brands. Um, and so that's sort of the model we hung our hat on. And then when we realized that it was probably going to be the potential target from an acquisition standpoint, we stopped creating new products and really just focused on, you know, how do we help existing brands in market? Yeah. So by doing that, there's a couple of problems that a normal private label seller has that you probably bypass is one is product launches because more than likely those products already are on Amazon. You don't have to do a launch, right? Right. And the other one is the, the most asked question when it comes to selling on Amazon is how do you get reviews? In your situation, it's not a, as big as a deal, or is it? Um, it's Well, what we're doing is we're riding the brand equity. So we know that those brands, in order to be successful, which is, um, you know, usually, you know, if we're talking to an enterprise brand, some, some type of brand you've already seen in market, they're going to have some level of success. So they've sort of figured out that launch piece. They have the attention. Now mm -hmm. it's a matter for us to point that attention at the most beautiful listings that we can create for them and then accelerate the momentum, um, by doing, by layering in Amazon's best practices. So yeah, we bypass the, um, you know, the, the launch process for the most part, the reviews, you know, are still it's still touch and go because you know, there's no, there's no good way to get a thousand reviews on a listing very quickly or even 50 for that matter. And so we still have to, um, you know, be patient with the reviews, but because you're working with existing brands and market brands that potentially people are going to be passionate about, it is easier sometimes to conjure up those reviews from their customers um, because they're already fans of the products. Since you deal with big brands, Normally, by the time you, you get there, that big brand probably has 20 sellers on that listing. If you do get approval from the brand to be exclusive, how do you get rid of those uh, 19 or 20? Great question. So what we do is before, you know, if a, if a, if a brand is a, has 20 sellers on their listing, um, during the sales process, we're going to get pretty granular with them in terms of why is that the case? What is the strategy behind it? If, if, if they are not in approval of that, uh, of those 20 sellers, how are those sellers getting their products? What does distribution look like? And what are we going to do to ensure that those sellers go away? Because otherwise we're going to be just sitting on product and ultimately it's not going to, you know, it's not, we're not going to be able to fund our efforts um, and we're not going to sell through any products. So the relationship which won't, so it'll sort of die on the vine. And so it's, it's a matter of really looking granularly at the protocols that the brands have set up and oftentimes convincing them that if they do have 20 sellers, that most of those sellers are probably getting their products, you know, either through their own wholesale business or through a distributor. And that oftentimes they think that their brick and mortar business is much bigger than it actually is because all those sellers are just moving their product on Amazon, but posing as a brick and mortar. And mm -hmm. so it's really working with them to, I, you know, to understand And the good news is they understand this more and more nowadays but really letting them know that they're not doing you any justice by being on Amazon and splitting up that pizza into 20 slices. It's better to channel that all through one, whether that be them as the seller, the brand, 
um, or you know a third party like Quiver. But the less sellers, I always say more sellers, more problems. So we want to limit them. Exactly. And I agree 100% with that. Just last week, I had a call from one of the Amazon reps and invited me to the Amazon Transparency Program. Yep. And, uh, you know, we, we put a special barcode. And the issue I have with that is that every single barcode has to be unique. So if, if you sell 200,000 units of, of whatever product, you have to print 200,000 different barcodes for each unit. And I don't know if I'm in that yet because of that, right? Right. Yeah, we, uh, we participate in the transparency program. And we, we have the we have the barcode printer here. <laughs> yeah. And it definitely from a um, production standpoint, takes more time to get set up. Uh, I will say that it has cleaned up the channel in, in certain cases with certain brands. And so, it, you know, if, if you're facing a lot of counterfeit potential, I think it's it's interesting to look at. Um, but it definitely breaks the, uh, the supply chain potential because you have to get, you know, you're not going to want to ship everything to, you know, your location and then label. You're going to want to do that at the point of manufacturing. But that breaks the manufacturing process also most of the time. So it's a uh, it, it's it's definitely a big nod from Amazon wanting to move in the right direction. I think it's just a challenging one to 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 implement. Yeah, was one one of the brands that I have is it's it's over ten years old and it's it's been selling on shelves and stuff like that. And it's just on Amazon. It hasn't been there for too long uh, directly, right? It was always uh, wholesalers and like. We want to clean up the listing, but we don't want to get rid of the sellers that are actually buying the the original product. So it's it's a bit of I don't know, like a two-edged sword, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they have a they have an extension of that program called Project Zero um, that you can get through Brand Registry. And it's um, from what I understand, we're not we're not participating in it right now. But you you put your codes on your products. You can then go into the listings potentially and, and flag sellers that are not approved and they will remove them um, from what I've heard. Mm-hmm. So I haven't seen that live and in action. Um, but, you know, Amazon, it, it's funny because on one hand, um, I've always, I've said from the beginning, Amazon's number one concern is that their customers are happy. Uh, and we as sellers are, are not their customers. Exactly. Uh, and the brands that make their products are also not their customers. Although we're customers of Amazon's in a different way, the real customers they care about are the ones that buy products on their website. And the way that they stay loyal to those customers and keep those customers happy is by keeping prices down. And the way that you keep prices down is by keeping the marketplace as open as humanly possible. And so I think yeah. with transparency, like, you know, and in that open model, you have risks of counterfeits and, and old product ending up on the marketplace, expired products ending up on the marketplace. And so you know, they've created their own problem in the situation and transparency is one remedy um, to potentially overcome it. Um, but there's definitely going to need to be a lot more done if they truly want to uh, to clean up the, uh, the channel. The challenge is how do you keep it as an open marketplace as you do so? Mm-hmm. There's another issue that now thinking about it, something that may happen to you because, for example, as a private labeler, I create all my listings, so I kind of, in most situations, I can edit it and change my listings as I please at any time. But, for example, for my brand that's been out there for 10 years that was not on Amazon because of a big, let's just say there was a big e-commerce site that uh, has exclusivity of this product, and they were selling a few million 
And so just let them do it right. But now that they're slowing down, we're going to take care of our own brand on Amazon. But there's, uh, let's say, 20 sellers on that listing. And we did not create that listing. So we need permission from Amazon every time to edit the listing. You know what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, this is and this is like the, the, the challenge that the big brands faced when we first approached them, you know, back in the day, because they were like, why would we pay attention to Amazon? We're not, we're not doing that. And so what happened, yeah. opportunistic, you know, resellers paid attention to it for them. And it was, it was never at the best interest, never with the best interest of the brand in mind. It was just, how do we sell more products? Yeah. And, you know, you'll have unoptimized content, you'll have weird images, like lack of bullets, no titles, like just all sorts of random stuff, not even correct UPC codes in some cases. And so, yeah, you, you'll definitely, there, there will be an uphill battle, as you know, to, to, to get, you know, the rights to that content. Do you have, do you have brand registry for it? Uh, for, for this particular one, no. Well, we have the, uh, we have the trademarks and everything. Cool. Uh, but we haven't sent in the brand registry just because one of our brands, when we did brand registry, it automatically got brand gated. Really? Yes. Uh, it was, I don't know, by default, we're never requested, but it got brand gated and it had 14 different products with, I don't know, 20 something SKUs and it got brand gated um, automatically. And we didn't want that to happen and kick out the the wholesalers, the people that are actually buying the product on a shelf somewhere and still trying to sell it, right? Right, right, right. But I mean, but really, I mean, couldn't you just take that business from them or are they strategic? The thing is, because for the longest time it was out of our hands, we were just manufacturing the product and everybody else could have it. Right. And in this case, it was GNC was the big seller. GNC was selling a a few million of our product online and then um, they let them run with it because they were the biggest seller. So let them have it. And now there's many people that have been buying from them or I, I don't know, but there's, it's a legit product because I do, I do random purchases every now and then, right. To see the, if it is the official product and it is, and I just don't know, um, it, should I, should I kill the listing by brand registering and kicking them out? What I would do is, and G, like, let's just say maybe it's GNC, maybe it's not, but the, this, this strategic retailer, they're, they're selling on Amazon? We don't know because not with that name, no. Not with that name. Okay, cool. No. What, what I would do is, you know, it, and it sounds like the exclusivity for this product offline is, is, is no longer. You can sell it wherever you want. Exactly. Um, so what I would do is I would use the tools that we mentioned, you know, Jungle Scout, Helium 10, do a back, you know, project what your current run rates would look like. I would, I would stock those SKUs with inventory at FBA. Um, and then I would proceed with the brand registry. Um, because ultimately if you've got the system up in place to, um, you know, sell the product on Amazon, you should be, unless you're, you're, you're netting a better margin offline. I'm assuming if you go direct to consumer with an Amazon, you're going to be making probably more money. Um, and so I would definitely go that direction. I would, I would try to take all the business over for myself, um, because wholesales, wholesale accounts don't really do anything for you. Uh, if you know how to do Amazon. Yeah, that is kind of the plan. And I actually, I try to update the, the images and there's stuff like what you mentioned earlier that some sellers, uh, they don't have the brand image in mind. They, they want to sell more product and 
there have been sellers that gain permission to edit the listing and they write stuff in there uh, like certified vegan. Right. Right. And there's like, man, there's milk and butter in this. It's not vegan. <laughs> yeah. right? How, how can you write that there? And <laughs> so that kind of stuff is what we want to stop. And yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, even just as, as little as we were talking about reviews earlier, as little as just having a drip email that goes out to every customer that buys the product to make sure that they're happy. Um, you know, granted, like 1% of those customers are going to get back to you and maybe convert into a review. But it's just those little things that you would do if you were selling the product that your wholesalers aren't going to do, because you're just one of all their brands that they sell. Um, and that was always the pitch that we made to brands. We're like, look, we can, we're basically going to be you on Amazon. We're going to represent you the way you want to be re represented. We're going to create the content that you want to have created. We're going to follow up the customers to drive more reviews. Um, be, you know, ultimately because a lot of the brands didn't have the expertise in house to facilitate it. You've definitely got that expertise. Um, and as those sellers fall off those listings and you go through brand registry, you should have less trouble um, updating the content. The good news is um, if they did somehow, some way gate you, once you get that content in there, it should, you know, I'm doing air quotes, it should stay the same way because you're not going to have anybody pushing, you know, stuff to override it. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. All right, on Ryan. So do you know right now with all the big brands that you have, do you know how many SKUs are being managed by your company? Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know that number. I, I would imagine it's Probably a thousand ish, maybe maybe more than a thousand. I, I bet it's somewhere in the thousand range. Okay, so it's it's not a, one of those insane numbers. So when you get, I don't know. Let's just explain to me how that works. For example, if you contact a, a huge company, let's say like WD Forty, and they would have two or three hundred SKUs on a list. Yep. Not all of those are going to be good products for you to sell. Is that correct? You're spot on. <laughs> so the brands will come to us and they'll say, hey, we want all this stuff going on. And then what we'll do is go back and run a profitability analysis to determine, okay, what are, what are the prices that it's being sold at? What are Amazon's fees look like at the end of the day? What's our cost going to be? Uh, and then we can come back with a, you know, sort of what our net profit would be after all of that. Um, and we've got, you know, we have, we have certain thresholds that work for us. We have certain thresholds that don't. So yeah, it's not a, um, the reason why that number is not 50,000 SKUs, uh, is because, you know, we are run with, you know, you know, certain margin requirements in yeah. place so that we can sustain the business and the infrastructure and looking for the types of product opportunities that are going to, you know, carry certain margins. So there's, there's definitely products that fit right into that. And there's, there's ones that, that, that don't. Nice. Yeah, there's, um, is there a possibility of, for example, you creating bundles with those products? Yeah, you're spot on. We do a ton of that. Okay. Uh, so it's just one way that you can get the average order value up and, you know, your FBA fees don't necessarily double when you create a two-pack out of something. And so, yeah, you're, you're, you're spot on. Creating that unique sort of variation and, and giving the customer, you know, more variety in the catalog. It's, it's a good thing. And what's cool is a lot of the big brands aren't set up to do that. And so we work very intimately with our, um, with our logistics team to ensure that we can, you know, have that, that capability. And is there such thing as a very big brand that is not on Amazon yet? You know, the, the old school brands that they're good at manufacturing the products and they just wanted to be at, uh, on the shelf at Walmart at one point. And meanwhile, with time or 
age that brand forgot that they should be online. Is there such thing? Yeah. I mean, believe it or not, like there are still brands that don't really pay attention to Amazon. Um, you know, beyond that, you've got brands that are actively avoiding Amazon. Yeah. And I don't think that's a, a bad thing necessarily, especially if you've got a, a really built out direct to consumer sort of knowledge power behind you. I mean, like Glossier, which is a cosmetics company, I think they, I don't know if they're, they're valued at a billion dollars or something like that, but yeah, they don't, they don't touch Amazon. They do everything through their website. Um, and maybe now they're in brick and mortar, but you know, there, there's strategic reasons to not be on Amazon, you know, yeah. in certain instances. It's funny that you, that you mentioned Walmart because I believe Walmart owns a brand um, under their own private label called Equate. Uh, and Equate is on Amazon, just like Kirkland's on Amazon, like selling really well. But it would be an example of like a brand that sells really well on Amazon that, that, that nobody's paying attention to because it's a direct conflict for Walmart. Yeah. Uh, but there's others out there that aren't owned by like big competitors that, you know, they're just sort of big brick and mortar plays and they've never really, you know, focused on Amazon, never felt the need to. Exactly. And do you use walmart.com as e-commerce platform as well? We are on Walmart. We're very new. Um, I believe we launched in the last couple months. We always said that um, once we've perfected Amazon, we'll move to the other marketplaces. And mm -hmm. so <laughs> we still haven't perfected Amazon, but we've moved to Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, you can uh, never perfect it, right? It yeah, keeps yeah, changing. <laughs> yeah, you can never perfect it. It's like that. Do you ever get those dolls that you... Um, you like open them up and there's a smaller doll inside of it. You open it up, there's a smaller doll. They, like, yes, yes, yes. That's like, like Amazon. Like I'm waiting for the day where we get to the, the middle one, but no, it never comes. It just, you know, it just keeps going. Yeah. I think what ends up happening is it just gets to a point that there's still more dolls in there. Just your fingers are now too big to be opening more and more. Right? Yeah. Dude, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, it's like, It's sort of like, you know, if you, if you probably asked Einstein about, you know, all the things he knows, he would tell you like a million things that he doesn't know because he's smart enough to know all the things that he doesn't know. Mm -hmm. And I think with Amazon and knowledge and really anything, it's like the smarter you get, the real, you realize there's just layers of complexities that could probably be applied beyond what you know. And then it just keeps you constantly, you know, learning and, and trying to learn about whatever it is you're doing. Exactly. That's why I pay attention to a lot of brand new sellers because they see things with different eyes. So something that is completely normal, for example, for you and me to, to see on a listing, maybe because it's brand new to them, they could see it differently and, and actually, you know, have an advantage that way. Yes. I have a perfect quote for you that I heard at a, at a show I was at. It said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are a few. Hmm. Uh, and it's like a Zen, Zen quote. And it's, yeah, it's just, you know, when you're young, there's, you don't know where the bumpers are. And maybe you don't even care if you do know where they are. Yeah. You're, you're like willing to risk it. And yeah, you, I see these new sellers and they come in and they become best sellers very quickly. And then I, I sort of delve into, you know, I try to reverse engineer what they're doing. And yeah, yeah. In certain cases, I'm like, okay, well, you're not supposed to do this, that, or this, but it's working and you're being rewarded with sales. And then we come back and we're like doing everything, you know, above board, but then it makes you pause and you're like, well, maybe, maybe we should be over optimizing our titles and putting watermarks all over it. You know what I mean? Like it just makes you start questioning where Amazon's going to, you know, draw the line and then draw the hard line. Yeah, exactly. They, they, every now and then they come up and update terms of, in terms of service, 
And remember when we had to put the brand first on the title and would yep. have to, and, and then at one point their, their own algorithm wasn't favoring that because of the first things to show were the things that would get indexed quicker or ranked higher, I mean. And so everybody started removing brands from the beginning of the title and putting them towards the end, or some people don't even put them at all, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the big selling props we had a couple years ago was we would get brands that were selling direct to Amazon 1P. We'd move them over to third-party selling. And one of the selling points was, hey, when you upload your content within Amazon, they've got their rules and parameters of what you can and can't do. And just so you know, it's not best practices from an SEO standpoint within Amazon. Um, so yeah. it was, they like, they, they completely, you know, followed suit with what you said. It was like, they wanted you to do it one way, but they didn't reward you for doing it that way. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I thought too. Yeah. So, yeah. And now do you find, I guess, how often do you, if you have a, um, a product that you're the only one that's selling, how often do you try updating those titles, like shrinking the amount of characters? Do, do you uh, play around with that? You know, what we do is when we're working with an established brand, you know, trying to sort of, I don't want to say game, like game, game the listings to create more visibility. Mm -hmm. It's not as critical as it is if you're a net new brand and you're trying to perfect the perfect title so that you're going to get the highest conversion rate like that. You know, for us, it's yeah. more like we need to put in the relevant information. We need to make sure that it's, you know, optimized from an SEO perspective, but it also needs to be, you know, readable by the end user because there's a real brand here behind it. We can't just be spammy. And so we try to get it, you know, as close as we can get it. And then we'll go back and visit it from time to time to see if it needs to be refreshed to see if it's been overwritten. Um, because that's obviously something you don't want it to happen. Yeah. Um, but we're not, you know, we're not as probably granular as some of the private label guys where you're like split testing, you know, certain aspects unless, unless it is like a net new launch for, for a brand. They really want that data. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good to know. All right, Ryan. So right now, like like I said, the Quiver brand only deals with major brands, right? The the CPG normally. But if people still want to hear more from you and learn more from you, how can they find you? Cool. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm always happy to help people, especially there's a lot of people like in the entrepreneurial journey that are probably listening to this and to your podcast. And it's hmm. so awesome that you put out, you know, good content to support them in that. And so I'm on LinkedIn. I put out quite a bit of content on LinkedIn, probably like 75% of it is Amazon related. And it's more about like stuff, some of the things that I'm seeing, you know, from, from the battlegrounds of like working with big brands and what's happening here, questioning, is this a test? Is this not a test? So yeah, just on LinkedIn, just, you know, Ryan, Ryan Mulvaney on LinkedIn, if they want to, you know, connect and, you know, follow along there. Perfect. That's where I follow you too. And cool. just to make sure that I get updated every time you post something, <laughs> I make sure to like it because every time I like one of your posts, uh, LinkedIn shows it to me on top of my feed. So oh. When I open my LinkedIn, you're normally one of the first ones there. I appreciate that, man. That's good. That's good to know. I, you know, it's funny because I, I put out quite a bit of content on, on LinkedIn, but I don't, I don't really scroll through my feed all that much. So it's always cool when people tell me like, oh, this is how it works or, you know, cause I, I don't know a whole lot about it actually. I just, I just sort of like put stuff out there uh, and hope that I don't say anything that offends people. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes the posts that offend people are the ones that get the highest engagement, right? I, I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> Actually, I, I definitely offended people with my post yesterday that there's a, a, a piece in the Wall Street Journal, I believe it's the Wall Street Journal, about how Amazon is manipulating the search results to favor their own brands and products. Oh, I saw um, it. I saw it, yeah. And, and, and everyone's like in upheaval and I'm like, well, you, like, yeah, like, what do you expect? Like, they've been doing this for a long time. They, they didn't just change something. It's retail, just like, always do that. Yeah, it's just like retail. Now I get it. Like if, if you're spending dollars and people are clicking on those ads and those ads are driving you to something that's now going to be cross-sold with an Amazon product, like that's, that's a little, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, so that, yeah, that post did get quite a bit of engagement. So yeah, maybe, maybe right. Maybe I should just uh, continue to go down the controversial path. Yeah, because if you get somebody to click on it once or comment on it once, then you're going to show up on top of their feed, right? I'm, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe a couple of years ago, I saw one of your videos that you had received a pallet uh, that came back from Amazon and the product wasn't yours. Yeah, they that's sent, what happens. They sent you a wrong one and uh, I like that. And then since then, uh, I saw that your content is the kind of stuff that, that I want to engage with and I want more of. So I do, I do it on purpose and I click like, because I, I want to see more of your content. So I appreciate that, man. Well, I'll make a video about how I like you. So, uh, we, they still send us stuff that we don't sell. We've, we've been sent a, um, a sauna before or no, a gazebo, a basketball hoop, a 3d printer. Like I can go in the back warehouse right now and just pull out like hundreds of probably thousands and thousands of dollars worth of, uh, stuff that we never have sold. <laughs> it's incredible yeah all right ryan so thank you so much man and um it was a pleasure having you here on the podcast and i, I hope to hear more from you like i said yeah. i already follow you i'm just going to keep on reading and listening i appreciate it man thanks so much for your time thank you